Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week it's part two of the A to Z of Snooker. In the previous edition, we went from A to D. This week we've made it through from E to I. I've been joined by Neil Folds for the duration. Phil Yates had to duck out about halfway through. Alan McManus joined us a bit late. Hope you enjoy it. So E is for 80s, as in the 1980s. Obviously, the boom period in the UK... Um, still sort of romanticised by people of a certain age but I guess it's because if you were sort of lived through that era you couldn't get away from snooker I mean obviously Neil you were a top player during it what, what were your sort of memories of being a celebrity really? Well I think, I think I must have been very fortunate to have played snooker during that era because it was the best time to be playing you know I mean I turned pro and I was just, just 19 coming up 20 so I played through the um, from '84 onwards, right through that era. Um, the best, the best times of, of of my playing life, for sure. You know, and the game was big. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't the same. Um, without putting the other side to it, there wasn't the same options te- for, for television, was there? You know, there were four, three or four channels. Four, I think. I think Channel Four was invented then. Um, and it was live sport when you weren't seeing much live sport. You never used to see live football, did you? For instance, mm. at that time. Very so. Little. Yeah, very little. The FA Cup final yeah, was yeah. a big in the year in the Champions League final. But so, so you're watching live sport, and also there were heroes and villains in the game, and I think that's what people loved. You know, I mean, without going on about it, the time when I beat Alex Higgins, I've got loads of mail. Some was like, "How dare you beat Alex?" And some were saying, "Wonderful, great, glad you beat him." Didn't like him. So that was I was lucky to be involved in all that side of it. You know, but there were the big rivalries, you know, in the game, and and people loved it. You watched snooker because you wanted someone to win, and you wanted someone to lose. Mm. I mean, as much as I love all the amb- ambassadors in the game now, and there are some, as we know, um, you know, if everyone's a nice, consummate, polished professional playing another consummate, polished professional, people don't really have that same age when they watch it. But that was all there then, you know, and the game was big, and Barry um, had had his matchroom, and uh, and we played snooker all over the world. So yeah. I the eighties were big, and I was—I feel very fortunate to have been some kind of a part of it. Albeit not the, you know, not a Jimmy White big part of it, but I did play my part, and I was lucky enough to be there. The thing is, I think sports coverage now on the telly is better than ever, like what Sky and, and Eurosport and, and all the other channels do. But when it was just BBC and ITV, sports stars were proper stars. Everybody knew them. Yeah, I mean, I remember when the 
the theme music used to come on. It was like, oh, fantastic, yeah. you know, it's the Crucible or, or, or whatever. I mean, I'll break the 80s into two very different segments, really. One negative, one positive. I mean, as you say, great word to describe it, romanticised. The standard then <coughs> was pretty, you know, well below what it is now in terms of the lower-ranked players. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, they were nowhere near the guys now. Obviously, the top end, very different. I think one of the great things that made it, though, was that most of the players, or certainly a very large proportion of them, had had a life before snooker. They understood what it was like to have a job, and so they really appreciated what they were actually doing. You know, people like Rian and Spencer, and well, the list goes on and on and on. They'd had jobs, they knew how tough it was in the real world. So suddenly they were placed in this fantasy world, and you know, that's what made it so good. But also, it permeated the culture, didn't it? Because, I mean, Steve, for example, went on the Morecambe and White show, the biggest show on TV, <coughs> and lots of other shows, and snooker players were like, I suppose, the, the comparison now is people on reality TV. You, you just knew them. You knew yeah. their faces. They were there in the culture. Very, very interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it, is, it was like reality TV, wasn't it? You know, because uh, um, of that, you know. And it's interestingly, I know you're going to say something else now, but you could probably get a ticket to go to the Crucible lot easier than you can now. Strangely enough, you know, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't the same, uh, you know, like people just desperately trying to get in to see it. It was more on the television. It was more. It wasn't so much for the snooker fans as it is now. A lot of it. It was just for the general public. They just loved the game, didn't they? And and it was. A real education for me, actually, one specific thing about the 80s that taught me a lot about British society, and, and not a, a part of it I actually like, is the fact that Steve Davis was the actual model professional. He was brilliant at the game, he did absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever on the table, and so many people wanted him to lose. It was like this sort of jealous collective streak in people. You know, he's winning everything, we don't like that. And I remember being a, you know, a youngster then thinking, well, why don't they like him? Because What's he, what's he ever done to them? All he's done is do positive things, and yet it created that negative vibe. Do you remember the um, the Masters match between Alex Higgins and Steve Davis uh, at uh, the Conference Centre? And it was best of nine those days, and it was four four. Both players left the arena. Um, bear in mind, this was in London. You know, this is where Steve, uh, a lot of his friends were, 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 would have been around there. Um, it's, Alex came back to a big cheer, and when Steve came back in, they booed him. Yeah, they booed him. Yeah, a, yeah. a lot of about literally hundreds of people booed him. You think, what has Steve ever done wrong to deserve it? Except for just be well, really good at what win. he did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, was the, that was all it was. Yeah. I think as well that the sort of the way it was treated by TV, it was kind of more innocent. I mean, now everything is hyped in every sport. Everything is treated like the biggest deal ever because, of course, the TV companies are trying to keep viewers. So, at the start of a, a normal snooker program, there'll be like a, a minute-long sort of package, which, by the way, is taking about three hours to put together by the talented people who do it but in those days I was watching on YouTube the end of the 84 final when Davis beat Jimmy 1816 there'd been a great comeback and it, it, there's no arena interview they don't go in the arena interview them it just cuts back to the studio um, quite an anonymous studio it was done in the practice room in those days there's Viney I think it's Virgo and Willie Thorne just sat there and they talk about the match and then there's a plate of sandwiches just on the table <laughs> and David said because I'd overrun the slot David Vine said yeah the floor manager brought us some, some sandwiches to eat all very kind of it's not like the world final at all it's just okay well we've done that and it's kind of over but what was funny was he then said um, well it's a great final and next year's will have to go some to beat this well of course next year's was 1985 and, and inevitably we're going to mention that Phil I mean that, that was the kind of zenith of the whole soap opera wasn't it 
and it was the yoke that continues to be around the neck of snooker mm -hmm. because people always say you know if you quote a viewing figure to them which is a very good figure they'll say yeah but it's not 18.4 yeah. million or whatever it was you know because that's the figure that is quoted time and time again particularly by critics of snooker in the media you've got to remember back then the three four channels that was this even though you know 18.4 million was still a remarkable figure and i think it remains the largest after midnight audience for any program yeah and bbc2 audience but of yeah. course now the world final gets 50 60 million because it goes all around the world yes exactly so, yeah, so, yeah. yeah and that's the problem isn't yeah. it because people just think about it about a uk sport yeah. yeah okay you're never going to get those figures over here but like you say it's watched around the world by a lot of people so surely that's better isn't it mm. you think so there wasn't, a single, there wasn't a single century in that final and had it been a sort of 18-11, Davis win, which it probably should have been, you know, no one, no one would ever recall it. It was just, the, the finish was just so engrossing. Yes. Okay, well, let's move on to F, which is an uh, exciting topic, foul and a miss. This is the, uh, the miss rule, um, which changed in the early 90s, I think, um, to the three misses, and, and you lose the frame if you can see a ball directly. And it's one of those rules that, has its critics, but what was interesting was a few years ago the players were asked if they'd like to change it. There was a vote, and actually they didn't. So whatever problems they have with it, no one could think of maybe a better way of getting round a player, I guess, just deliberately missing. Well, I'll start this, but Neil's the, the real expert on this because he, he played under this rule. I should just say Alan McManus is about to join us. Come on, Alan. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll enjoy this topic, yeah. but come on. Yeah. So, before the rule was changed... It was abused like you would not believe. I'm not going to name names, your favourite phrase, name names. I'm not going to do that, but it was abused. Name There's, names, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it was. Or at least write them yeah. down so we yeah. can see them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was abused. There's no doubt about it. And while the I should just say to Alan, we're talking about the foul and a miss rule. Oh. Yeah. And while the current rule is not perfect, it's infinitely better than it was before it was changed. Infinitely better. So, yeah, we'll throw you right in the deep end, Alan. You've just sat down. Foul and a miss rule, I mean, from a player's perspective, is it kind of about right do you think? I think it's perfect um, yeah I think it's perfect I, I think the, the way that I um, to prove that it's perfect when was the last time there was a controversial ruling in a, in a big match I can't remember one really um, and the players know 99.9% .9 of the time you've got to hit the ball on unless it's like I mean I have seen a couple of times I remember Michaela um, when she was refereeing at the World Qualifying a few years ago and I uh, can't remember the player it might have been Jamie Jones actually um, it played out it was a really tough one and it was a, a brilliant effort he didn't make contact and she didn't call a miss and it was a brilliant call and Jamie's opponent I think it was Jamie his opponent never put up any sort of argument and uh, after the match actually I went to Michaela and I said listen I said, that, well done, that was a brilliant decision that you made, um, and uh, credit to her, but it doesn't happen very often. It could be, though, an argument against laying a really good snooker, because if it's an average snooker, you should escape from it, it will be called. If it's a fiendish, vile snooker, the referee might not call it, but then I suppose you could say, well, what's the point in getting in a really tough snooker? It doesn't matter to you, because you can get out of it. Well, <laughs> don't, don't, don't. <laughs> no, um, I think it's a brilliant rule. I think... I think the nature of people, the nature of a lot of snooker people these days, not the players, but I know people back home and they moan about it, oh the miss rule's terrible. They want something to complain about, but there isn't anything to complain about with the miss rule. I think it's superb. At pro level, amateur level's different obviously because you don't have a referee generally, so you get arguments over, put that back and all this business, but at, at the top level it's ideal. 
Do you think though, Neil, that like you can get a snooker that's worth like forty points? Is yeah. that right? Do you think? I don't know. There may be a way of tweaking that, but I don't know. I mean, it, 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 there's only so many points that you. I don't really like it when someone maybe would be ten in front, for example, on one red, and um, they're in a, a nasty snooker, and the next thing they need snookers. You know, it's possible that would be a lot of, of balls missed in a row. So I think that the point Alan makes is a good one that referees need to use their uh, discretion and not just blindly call a miss all the time. If there's one ball to hit and you, you get you miss it by a fraction. Um, and it's a difficult snooker, then it shouldn't be put back. And so Michaela did. I remember there was a match in the UK, the year David Grace got to the semi-finals of the UK, which would have been the year Neil Robertson won it, 2015, I think. Um, Martin Gould and David Grace played a match where, um, I think in the last frame, David Grace was in a very bad, very difficult snooker. And I think it was Terry Camilleri who didn't call a miss, and I think it was a great decision, a bit like that, you know. Whereas, uh, and after the match, I interviewed... Martin Gould because it was seen a bit controversial because he might have won the match there and then he lost it he said I abide by the referee's decision I thought that was very good of him actually and I think it was a good decision so the referees need to have the ability to, to, to show discretion and make use common sense uh, on that rule I think otherwise it's a, the rule works better certainly better than when players used to deliberately miss and Phil's going to name those names yeah. in a short while of the people that he thinks <laughs> were the offenders I, I actually just wonder uh, would a good rule be instead of three misses and you lose the frame three misses and ball in hand I was when, when, there's, yeah, a, when I, there's a full ball hmm. on I was wondering that I've, I, was, I was watching the snooker last night um, it was Karen Wilson Judd Trump as we record this and I was kind of just idly thinking that would that actually be a better solution it would speed things up You've, I don't know. What you've got to do, I think, you've got to try it for a tournament. Yeah. Maybe not the World Championship of the UK, a tournament, uh, and say, because there's always going to be something you hadn't thought. Changing the rules is a very dangerous yeah. thing in any any yeah. sport, um, because you can end up with a ludicrous situation. It's happening in cricket, in a lot of sports. So it's worth giving it a short term go, and if it doesn't work, then just scrap it and go back. I'm too cowardly to name names, but the, the colour... Oh, well, while this is recording, yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Singing, singing like a canary when yeah, he's yeah, doing yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, 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 the colour of a canary and the colour that denotes cowardice is yellow. Nice. And the one I always remember is on the yellow in a very high-profile match... Nice segue. ...in the 1980s. Very high-profile. No names are going to be mentioned, and it was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. Now, that would not be allowable. It would be a miss all day and every day. And that's the frame of reference. Before the rule was changed and after, what's better? And there's no doubt about it, what's better is now. I actually remember my first uh, time at the Crucible. I lost to uh, the Griff, and deep in the match, it was either 12 each or, or he was 12 11 in front. And he played, he played a miss. He didn't play a deliberate miss as such, but he played it. There was about six reds on, and he played a gap that Terry can find and the, the cue balls come back into bulk but now it would go back one million percent and I'm not saying it cost me the match because it didn't but it, it, it certainly helped me losing the match in the end but he wouldn't have gotten away with that now but that, he, Terry didn't do anything wrong I'm not blaming the, the people who, who took advantage of the rule because probably everybody did but the point was the rule was to, to be taken advantage of and now you can't take advantage of it no Okay, before I call a miss, let's move on to G. Now, G, and we're, we're fine ones to talk, G is for geeks. And what I mean by geeks, I want to mention some of the people who have helped uh, the game in terms of what they do online. Um, the first 
two snooker websites that I was aware of. One was Global Snooker Centre, which Janie Watkins ran very diligently for years before World Snooker even had a website. And if you wanted to follow like qualifying results and so on, he went on there. Um, and around the same time, Herman Ardlan, the Norwegian, set up snooker.org, which is still running now and still a great resource. Uh, and of course, in more recent times, we have QTracker, run by the great Ron Florax, which is an extraordinary site, incredible stuff on there. Me and Neil were looking at it last week. The, the, there was a stat on there. Um, the average century in terms of the number of centuries you've had. So, for example, if you made one century and it was 120, or average is 120, no, why anyone needs to know that we didn't, we couldn't work out. But it was just extraordinary well, to find is, that stuff. Because Ronnie is nowhere near the top of that list no. because he's made so many, and you, some of them will be hundreds. You were above Ronnie. I was above yeah. Ronnie, so I think in some yeah. way I must be a better, better player. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is these people, Phil. I mean, I know you, you and I are on like, these websites a lot, and we should also mention Chris Downer, who's less online, but he does his Crucible Almanac. So these people who, in their own time, and they're not getting any money for it, have helped snooker fans and indeed people within the game do their jobs. The three people you've mentioned, the, t- the two website guys and Chris Downer, have just improved the quality of our life. It's as simple as that. They've made our job so much easier and they've made us sound so much better than we are. They've made us sound much more well-informed than we are because we're getting all the stuff from them. So I thank them every single day of my life. I'll give you one very topical example. We were here at the Champion of Champions yesterday. I went on to Q Tracker to do some research on the match I was commentating on. And he's got the birthdays up there and it's got Ian Barry Stark brackets mm. 76 on it was Barry's birthday I went into the next room there was Barry I shook hands with him and said happy birthday Barry he went how did you know and I said keep track yeah. you know I'd never have known in a month of Sundays before that website mm. so they're, they're absolutely brilliant and thank you and also it's like a kind of museum of stats isn't it you know it's all there if you want to look up in an idle moment Alan your career record it's there yeah um yeah, and, and some people, we call it havering in Scotland, like lying. Um, <laughs> you know, some people embellish their records mm. and say, yeah, I beat him and I beat him. So you can go, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> and that has happened a lot, and yeah. a couple of boys in the club. Well, what happens is people just add a few little stats on there, say, yeah. I've made four centuries in that match. You look up, they made one, and That's a break right. of 80, and you think, you know, hang on, you can't get away with that. But um, <laughs> Hold on a minute. Name names, you've got to say that to him as well as me. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't leave him out. He's not going to name him, but just ask him. <laughs> no, I mean, I, look, I, I follow cricket, and there's a guy called Andrew Sampson who's the most brilliant statistician in cricket. He comes up with all kinds of wonderful stats, and Snooker's going that way. And they like doing it, as you say, they do it for their own interest because they're some people are very, very interested in the, in the stats. Some people just can't bear it. And I remember being doing going through the almanac with Jimmy White at. Um, for Eurosport, the, the World Championships, and he, said, he looked at it and he said, I do not want to see that, because he just can't bear it. He doesn't know anything, and he doesn't want to know, which is fine, isn't it? He, you know, he's all over it. Some of the things in there about him, not interested. But I love it, you know, and that's great. That Some people love the stats, and I think all of these people are, are just brilliant, and they, and they get so much enjoyment out of it. I remember actually being in the club. It would have been early 90s, obviously, pre-internet, and... Uh, but, and as we all know, and, and the, the punters would know, one of my best mates was playing a match. It was a big match at a venue, and uh, he was playing Joe Johnson. And um, the club, the telly wasn't working or something, so we had no page 387 on, mm. on um, CFAX or whatever it was. And uh, I had to go into the pub along the road because they had, what was it? It wasn't CFAX, it was, uh, what, what, anyway. And Peter, so is it all right if I. Um, you know, check your TV, and she said, well, no, you need to buy a drink, but I was in practice, and it was the afternoon, yeah. I said, okay, I'll have a fresh orange and lemonade, 
she gave me the clicker, I checked it, and I got the result. But otherwise, you yeah, couldn't. Yeah, you, yeah. you actually had to phone the venue yes, or whatever. That's right. So times have changed, and for the better. Yeah. yeah. We, have you got, the, I'm going to mention the Chris Lamner because Neil, it's a bit like yeah, the Christmas right. Radio Times to you, isn't it? I mean, yeah. when that World Championship's on. You, you're not party from it, are you? No, that's right. And I've got me almanac uh, already for um, for the for the the crucible in 2019. And you know, Chris Downer, he's updated it. I guess the first time he, he did it, compiled it, that was the difficult time, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> to get it all in. Now <laughs> so updating starting, it, isn't it? Yeah. update it would probably take him two or three weeks now. But yeah. I think it's wonderful. Okay, just so Phil Yates have to step out to do some actual work. But we'll carry on with H. Um, it can only be for Hendry, Stephen Hendry. In the last podcast, we talked about the great Steve Davis and all he achieved and the, the standards he set. And then, of course, in the 90s, someone came along and set even higher standards. Incredible. Yeah. Um, funny, I, I was talking to Stephen about this the other night. The, the first time I met him properly was the spring of 90. I was down at Pontins in Prestatin and... Um, well, it was, it was World Championship time, and um, I, had pl- I had won the Scottish Amateur Championship the, a, a few weeks before it. We were down for the home internationals, and I'd never even met Stephen. And he won the World Championship, obviously, on the Monday for his first time. We were in the Clude Bar in Prestatin, and someone tapped me on the shoulder, and, and I turned round. It was a busy, busy old place. I turned round, and it was Stephen. He'd won the World Championship the day before <laughs> for the first time, his first world title. And he, he said, hi Alan, I'm Stephen. He shook my hand, he said, well done winning the Scottish Amateur. And I said, um, you kind of won something like yesterday <laughs> that was quite important. And I said, you know, well done to him. That was my first sort of meeting with him, you know, it was, it was cool. I, I first, well, the year he turned professional, he turned professional 16, didn't he? And there was a lot, I hadn't seen him play, actually. I didn't see him when he was in the Star of the Future thing at the Pontins. I'd heard he was good. Um, but there was mutterings that he turned professional too young that's what they were saying and in, in his first year we were playing in the um, Mercantile uh, uh, Classic which was up at uh, Warrington and I'd won my first match I can't remember who I played but my next match I'm playing for the first time ever Silvino Francisco or Stephen Endry and at the time I thought well I haven't played Silvino he's a decent player um, been quite good if he lost actually you know, and play the other guy who I don't know much about, Hendry. I've told Stephen this story. Yeah. Um, anyway, Stephen beat him. Now, that's the only time I ever beat Stephen, by the way. I beat him 5 4, but I had to play, the, play the, one of the best breaks of my life in the decider. I could not believe how good he was. Yeah. He was just amazingly good. And um, after the match, I had to see the press and I said, Oh, look, I can't. What a fantastic player he is. And I remember Willie Thorne come up to me after and he said why, why, why are you giving that boy credit he said no, I don't know if he's going to be good enough uh, so I'm naming names you see yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I said I think he's brilliant I think he's brilliant and actually Stephen's mother wrote me a letter and said um, you were very kind to my son it was very kind of you she wrote me a letter and it delivered to my house and then she got the address but she um, said how, how kind you were to my son so that's my first memory and I never beat him again so there you are <laughs> I, I, I didn't get no the last letters. laugh no more letters no more letters <laughs> he, he kind of a famously as a kid he won the Scottish Amateur Championship twice in a row he beat uh, I think one of them he beat a guy called Stuart Nevis and the other one he beat um, a, a kind of legend in Scottish snooker Jimmy uh, McNellan and the final, I don't know where it was, but the, the story goes, and Stephen was only, I think, 15 at the time, 14 or 15. Now, back then, you, you didn't have anyone who was any, any way decent at that age, because it was all older guys, it was a, a pub club game. And, but Stephen had this talent. Anyway, 
so he played in the, the amateur final and I think he was 7-2 down, it was best of 17 I think he was 6-2 or 6-1 or something like that behind and he came off after the first session and the legend goes that he said right I've got him now, I know how to, I know how to beat him yeah. and he did, he beat him, I think it was 9-8 he beat him and, and th- th- those stories kind of circulate around the Scottish clubs and we all know about them up north and, but, I think, but it was amazing I think what's interesting though is like he's not often sort of lumped in with the natural talents but when you look at it he first played he was a Christmas present he got a snooker table in 1981 four years later he was a pro mm, yeah, no. <laughs> you know he was actually and then he played at the Crucible in his first year yeah. and played a complete that was the thing with Hendry he played a completely different style of game he just went for everything didn't he and he's ushered in now this attacking era because everyone that's come through after him has tried to copy him basically yeah I mean he looked, that first season he he, uh, he lost to Obi Agrawal in the <laughs> UK Championship now he, he was a Billiards player wasn't he and a half decent one but so he, he had a long way to go then but after that what you realise the man is he's as hard as nails on the table uh, completely um I was going to say a mercenary. What do I mean by that? He only wanted to win at snooker, a bit like Steve Davis. Same mentality. The money meant nothing to him. The fame meant nothing to him. You just want to. You get that in sport. People that just want to be the best, and they just want to stay the best. And everything that goes with it doesn't really stop them. Some people it stops them. You know, when they get money and they drive around in a nice car. And I mean, Stephen had nice things, but you knew that wasn't what, what spurred him on. And that's why he became such a great player because he just wanted to be good at that and nothing else. You know, and I, the only one I can think of. There's some great players now. I think well. Mark Selby is the nearest thing to it now. I would, I would say someone that just wants to win at snooker. Yeah. You know, the others are great players, but they have other things in their life. I also remember uh, uh, I said there the first time I met him properly. I also went and watched him do an exhibition. He must have been maybe seventeen. I was about fifteen, and you could see straight away. I mean, I remember it was on table thirteen in the club um, that I played in. They did this exhibition and. Within the first frame, I'm looking and I said, "Oh, this guy is just ridiculous," and and you sort of a no, don't you? You just know. It was. I mean, I'd seen a lot. Of, I was. I could play a little bit. I was decent. I'd seen a lot of guys who were good. You know, younger players coming through with the boom, the boom era, the mid eighties. But when I watched him live, I thought, "Oh, that, this is just something different." But the only thing with Stephen is, you know, maybe did he retire too quickly? I mean, you know, in his last season, his last uh, tournament. He beat John Higgins in the World Championships, albeit it wasn't a great match either, actually, and lost heavily to Steve Maguire, I think, really heavily. But, you know, could he have gone on five years? Probably, if he wasn't going to be top dog, he would, the answer would be no. To be a top 16 player, top 32 player, like Steve Davis did drop down, didn't suit, doesn't suit Steve, and that's why maybe he stopped when he did. I, I, yeah, I, I find it amazing now when you think back to, I think I'm right in saying he's, he said he developed the, this yip thing yeah. or whatever it was in about 201, roughly. Shame it wasn't a few years before. Uh, yeah, true, <laughs> I know, I would have won a couple of bob. But um, he, it's amazing that he almost masked it or he hid it, not hid it, it's, it's his property, it's his thing. But he didn't mention it for the, about 10 years until... You know, he stopped playing in the heads and chaos and all this kind of thing. So he must have really had some tough times for how good he was through the 90s. You go into the noughties and, and he, he, you know, for comparison with what he was doing then, it must have been torture for him mm. in a way. But I guess there'd be some newer snooker fans who did, don't really remember him <clears throat> in his prime and, and there's a tendency to kind of dismiss an era you haven't really been part of. But make no mistake, he did change the game and he was... 
like Phil said in the last podcast, Davis, when he won his sixth world title, was the best thing Snooker had ever seen. There's no doubt when Hendry, probably well before he won his seventh, was the best. Now, you can argue now maybe Ronnie O'Sullivan's overtaken him or whatever, but we should not detract from his achievements because they were extraordinary. They were. I mean, I've got so many memories, as, as we all do. I remember going to a Regal Masters final one year in, in, in Motherwell, and uh, Stephen played the Griff, actually, in the final, and he beat him 10-1, and Griff was lucky to get one. <laughs> Quite honestly, he was that good. It was, it was, And you knew turning up, I remember going to watch it, you knew what the score was going to be, you knew it was going to be a landslide win, and he did it all day. He seemed to do it all the time. He was that good. Let's quickly because I know you've got to go and work. Let's quickly try I. I is for India, because that's where snooker started. That's where snooker uh, was invented. That's how the sort of mythology goes at the UT club. And Dennis Taylor told me he actually went there. He was doing some <coughs> reality show uh, set in India, the real Marigold Hotel or something. And it, it, they went to the UT club. It was a three-hour journey <laughs> to get there. He wasn't very happy when he got there. But he said uh, he played on the original table. It's been reclothed, I'm guessing, since, since 1875. <laughs> but he said, actually, it was quite an emotional experience because, you know, everything that's happened since, basically, is down to that. And I think we probably all say that, really. Um, have, you, have you played out there, Alan? I, I, I've been twice mm. for the, in, the, in the last probably three or four years for the Indian Open, uh, Mumbai, and can't remember the other one. Um, I didn't do very well, uh, but uh, obviously it's got a huge billiards background yeah. with, with the, the Geet Setties and all the guys from 70s, 80s and, and Ferreras and all these names, that, um, although I think it's East South African it, it could be, but, um, and then Pankaj, obviously, yeah. uh, Pankaj Advani in recent years, he, I, I was actually amazed, for, for he's obviously world champion X amount of times, in billiards, but what a snooker player! I thought he was superb, and you could see when you played him. I played him, I think, three times. You could tell he was a billiard player the way he played snooker, and um, they've obviously got a rich history. I, I unfortunately, as I say, I've only been a couple of times, but we're all aware of it. I think everyone in snooker is. It's a lot of interest in the game over there. We went over there in the eighties, or maybe the, maybe about nineteen ninety. It was uh, one of Barry's um, trips. So anyway, the year I can't remember. Uh, we played in Thailand, Hong Kong, and we finished off in India. Stephen was on that trip actually because I remember he. The, we played the tournament in the hotel, and they actually Stephen nearly lost to a guy called Sonic Moltani. Remember him? He, good, good player, big thick glasses. He had Stephen beaten, um, but there was a huge. You couldn't get anywhere near the table. It was there was a massive interest in the game. I ended up losing to Davis in the tournament. And they really appreciated good snooker. They really appreciated it. It was, it was a really good event. So that we go back. I mean, you think though, going back, really, when you think about how the game was invented, uh, there must have been drink involved. Would you say? <laughs> you know, they got a few billiard balls. They think, well, ball with this. Let's uh, let's drink yeah. a bit of fine port. You'd hope and, so, because that's uh, been a tradition in snooker as well. Well, it yeah. has. But you know, they must have. They've invented a game there, and they think we'll put all these balls on the table. Well, it, well it, it's, it's attributed to Colonel Neville Chamberlain, but he wasn't a colonel at the time. He was 19 years of age, yeah. so, the, so the story goes. became a colonel later in life. And Chris Downer, who we mentioned earlier, from the Crystal Almanac, he tra- tracked down his grave, took a picture of his grave. I'm not quite sure where it was. That's niche. That is very niche, very niche. But, but it's kind of, yeah, but he's like, little did he know that year, like 100 and so years on, we'd be sat here recording yeah. a podcast. There were no podcasts, so how would he know? No, that? no. But, <laughs> but it's... Uh, Am I, sorry, yeah. am I right in thinking that the word snooker actually, would they yeah. come from the army cadets or something it's, over in India? It was an insult um, that right. I think that the officers gave 
the younger like members of the army. So imagine what it could have been called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and on, it has been called by yeah. a lot of you, And on that bombshell, um, the, we will conclude. The A to Z of snooker will continue at some point with the letter J. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera. Baratapapa. En McDonald's Participantes por Tiempo Limitado. Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera. Baratapapa. En McDonald's Participantes por Tiempo Limitado.